The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. William Faulkner, the big kahuna, or a big kahuna. One of them, a white whale and a great, great writer. Not everyone agrees. Corn Cobby Chronicles, said Vladimir Nabokov. He could be a little cranky sometimes. Well, we will let you decide for yourself. We're going to be hearing a story of Faulkner's, A Rose for Emily, Coming up soon today, and Mike Palindrome will be here to help us introduce the story and to discuss it afterwards. And we are looking at this in some context here at the History of Literature. What do we do with a man, a writer, like William Faulkner? His life is the stuff of legend. Born in Mississippi in 1897, his father, a railroad man working for his grandfather who owned a railroad company. His father thought he might inherit the railroad. Seems like a natural expectation. But the grandfather said, nope, <laughs> I don't think you can run a business. So the father, Faulkner's father, had been the treasurer of the company. And the grandfather saw what he <laughs> saw, what it, saw what Faulkner's father had to offer and said, I'm going to sell this thing. $75,000. And the father was disappointed and said, I will go to Texas then and become a rancher. But his wife, Faulkner's mother, Maud, said, Nope, we're moving to Oxford, Mississippi, because your father owns some businesses here. You can work for him. His mother was very practical. Great reader also. She instilled this in young William, and she also exposed him to painting and taking photographs while his father taught him how to fish and hunt. She put Dickens in his hands, Grimm's fairy tales, stuff like that. William, young William, was a smart boy. He also had an African-American nanny, which is another formative piece of the Faulknerian puzzle. He loved her. She raised him from infancy. Callie was her name. William was a smart student, skipping grades at an early age, then becoming kind of a wayward teen, a bit dreamy, a bit of a drifter. He liked studying his own things on his own schedule and thinking his own thoughts. He had to repeat 11th grade, and then he had to repeat 12th grade, and finally he just left high school without graduating. Meanwhile, he was fascinated by the history of Mississippi, liked reading books about that instead, and the history of his own family, the Faulkners, spelled with no U. They were Civil War heroes, including one they called Old Colonel, William Clark Faulkner, young William's namesake. This was his great-grandfather, who was also a writer and a successful businessman, too. It was the Civil War and soldiering that inspired Faulkner's romantic imagination, and when the war broke out, World War I, he was eager to participate. However, he was too short to join the U.S. Army, so he headed up to Canada, where he joined a reservist unit of the British Army. 
He came back from that with a kind of a stage version of himself, a returning war hero, a character who walked with a cane and wore a cape, claiming that he had been in the British Royal Flying Corps engaged in combat. Records do not confirm this purported experience. Seems to have been invented by our young, inventive, soon-to-be novelist. He was able to go to college now, even though he hadn't graduated from high school. Could go to college at the University of Mississippi in Oxford because his father worked at a business manager there. There's a tradition in the family, as you can see, of genuine heroism gradually fading over the generations into something like a stage-like version of itself, a facade, a pretend version, make-believe. The great-grandfather was an actual hero and a success. The grandfather owned a railroad. The father was given a job through nepotism, and the son is too short to be a soldier and can't even finish high school. It's not exactly distant from the general declining of Southern aristocracy that Faulkner records in so many of his books, the sense that great and august personages end up becoming cartoon versions of their predecessors. It's easy to forget this. Faulkner became a great and celebrated figure through his writing, an artist, far more successful and important figure than the old colonel, who today we only know because of his illustrious great-grandson. But before that, for the 20 or so formative years of Faulkner's early childhood, he was living in a world with a somewhat failing father and showing even less promise himself and very aware of the difference between the past and the present. And it still lingered. That was the thing about the past. Never died, he said. It it wasn't even past. He was proud fiercely proud, much prouder than a high school dropout who was too short to join the army probably had a right to be, in the view of some of his peers. When he got a job at the post office, his pride came out. He famously quit in one of the great moments of indignation and job quitting. Quote, as long as I live, this was from the letter that he wrote when he resigned. Quote, As long as I live under the capitalistic system, I expect to have my life influenced by the demands of moneyed people. But I will be damned if I propose to be at the beck and call of every itinerant scoundrel who has two cents to invest in a postage stamp. This, sir, is my resignation. End quote. That's a man who's proud because of his his ancestry, I think even though he maybe hasn't deserved anything, doesn't, hasn't done anything to, to uh, have earned that position, at least not yet. He might have been finished with the United States Postal Service, but they were not finished with him, eventually issuing a 22-cent postage stamp in his honor. By then, he had become a Rushmorean-level American writer, multiple Pulitzer Prizes, multiple National Book Awards, honorary degrees, a French Legion of Honor. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature and used the money to support new fiction writers, which became known as the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Certain writers are unimaginable without him. Cormac McCarthy comes to mind, and Flannery O'Connor. She once said, quote, The presence alone of Faulkner in our midst 
makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track that Dixie Limited is roaring down. End quote. The comparison and the contrast with his contemporary Ernest Hemingway was there from the start, and it was inevitable. One of the best ways of thinking about them come from, I think, Malcolm Cowley. Working from memory here. Might not have been him. It was one of those great thinkers and critics. Or maybe it was one of those great creative fiction essayists. Anyway, this person said that a young writer should read all of the Faulkner they can get their hands on and then read Hemingway to get the Faulkner out of his or her system. What does that mean? Well, it's about style. Of course, Faulkner wrote in a kind of fugue-like prose style, sentences that rambled and roared, a stream of consciousness that could turn into a flood. It could be infectious, was the point, and Hemingway would restore some order and definition and discipline to the young writer who might be getting a full head of steam going, the train, the Dixie Limited, but the train that can sometimes jump the tracks. But then there's a question, why read Faulkner in the first place? If Hemingway's style is what should be emulated, if that's good discipline, why read Faulkner in the first place? Well, there is something in that pumping engine that wild, screaming locomotive, the Dixie Limited. There's a storytelling powerhouse in there. There's stuff in Faulkner that exists nowhere else. The characters, crazy characters, the fierce intelligence hidden behind the simpleton masks. Faulkner makes his world as complex as the actual world is, and his stories are at once cerebral, compelling, moving, haunting, funny, wry, Desperate, devastating, exhausting, and exhaustive. Somehow the whole world poured out of him. Faulkner drank whiskey, he went on incredible benders, and he wrote on the walls of his study to help him keep track of the plots of the novels he was writing. He went to Hollywood a few times to work as a screenwriter, worked on some Hemingway adaptations, interestingly enough, but he knew what he was about. Hollywood might butter his bread a little, but the loaf, the bakery, the grains of wheat, the the mill, the whole wheat field was back in the South. And he returned there to write the novels that made him an important world figure. There's very little I love more than the version of Faulkner I just related, the one who said that writers should be willing to kill all their darlings, and the one who gave the beautiful Nobel Prize for Literature speech. The man who watched a crate of whiskey being lowered onto a ship where he was taking a cruise, I think. Again, I'm working from memory here. I couldn't find the story. I'm sure it happened. Or I'm sure I read read it. <laughs> Maybe it was fake. It's too good of a story. It must be true. Crate was being lowered onto a ship. He was standing next to a man who watched it being lowered onto the ship and said, Mr. Faulkner, what is that? And he said, sipping whiskey. Here's a quote from Faulkner. Always carry a flask of whiskey in case of snake bite. And furthermore, always carry a small snake. <laughs> it's one of his better lines. The man who quit his job and struggled for money and wrote on his underwood and became a god in France through his writing 
Oh, that's a wonderful story for me. And I'm glad we have William Faulkner. I'm glad American literature has him and his books. It's one of our greatest cultural treasures. And yet, and yet, you knew there'd be an and yet, right? And yet, there's another side of Faulkner, a darker side. And he has critics, and they are not wrong to ask us to take a look at this darker side. It's not quite Thomas Jefferson. He was not a founder of our nation, and his darker side was not quite as hypocritical. But we have an and yet. For all of Faulkner's greatness, and as tempting as it may be just to focus on the greatness, just read the books, Jack. Come on. Just focus on the greatness. Set the other stuff aside. It's hard to do. We have an and yet. I'll give you another example. Michael Jackson. There's an and yet there. Kobe Bryant. We can focus on Michael's music or Kobe's basketball and say there were some ugly things in their personal lives. You can like them or not. You can ignore those or not. But if you're appreciating Kobe's basketball, you can separate it from whatever he did off the court. It's possible to talk about the basketball without the personal life. You don't have to do that, but you can. It's theoretically possible. But how about Bill Cosby? That's a different story, isn't it? That's one where we appreciate Bill Cosby, or we used to appreciate him, for being wise, for being kindly, for being America's dad. And that's gone. I don't see how you can watch Bill Cosby now without thinking that all that advice he was giving, all that mugging for the camera is just tainted by what we know about the man. Thomas Jefferson, too. He's an interesting figure to me now because I see in his hypocrisy something human and fundamental and central to our understanding of our country. Not every hero has to be purely heroic. We can appreciate flaws, too. Woody Allen, another great example. If he was a a juggler, then maybe we could say, well, look, there's the juggling. Over here, we can admire that, appreciate that. That's independent of the person and their personal life, but he's not a juggler. He's a filmmaker who wants to be a, an Ingmar Bergman who aspires to be someone who can tell us something essential about human beings, about relationships between men and women. And it's fair to say, well, hang on. Is this a reliable source? Is this glimpse he's giving us of husbands and wives, of husbands and lovers? Does he know what he's talking about? Because it seems from his personal life that he might not. Which is not to say we don't watch his movies. But maybe we come into them with a little sharper eye. We don't say, as we did in the 1980s, Ah, Woody, here's a guy we can appreciate. Here's a guy who's just like us, only funnier and more successful. Here's a guy we'll listen to and love because he's better than us. We say, okay, here's an artist who's selling us on his vision. What is that vision? What's he saying that's true? Does he have some insight into something essential here? Maybe he's right. Maybe he's not right. But I'm going to look really hard at his vision now. I'm going to see whether he's got some gaps. That's an interesting way to watch his films. Does he have some gaps here? I don't mean between his life and his art. No one is ever going to 
match their life and their art perfectly. That's not the goal. It's not the point. The point is that maybe when a Woody Allen presents a woman, a wife, a nagging wife, maybe when he talks about a relationship between a man and a woman, one of those May-September romances, you start to look at the framework of all that and say, well, is this how women are? Is this how relationships are? Or did Woody put his thumb on the scale here? Is this how relationships seem to him? Is this what he's trying to work out? Is he wrestling with this? Something he feels to be true and something he knows to be true? He knows how others view it? Is this how relationships inevitably end? Or is it because there's something invisible that's pushing it toward this? Maybe it's betrayal that he's papering over. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's lack of self-control. Maybe what we're watching is not a group of Manhattanites running through their lives, but a viper's den of celebrities, egomaniacs, who he's trying to portray as doctors and social workers and ordinary people, but he can't help himself because he's tapping into something here and he's selling us a version of something that he himself can't quite fully sell. Thomas Jefferson is like that too. So smart in so many ways. And then this huge blind spot when it comes to race. He sells us on the rights of man He sells us on the independence from kings. He sells us on architecture and God and all these different things. It's easy to think he has answers when it comes to race as well, but that's where he stumbles. That's where our critical faculties are needed. That's where we have to take a closer look at what he's trying to say because he's scrambling to cover his tracks there, scrambling to bridge some gaps like those characters with with one foot on either side of a cracking ice shelf. He tries to hold it together. He tries to stay balanced, but the ice is spreading apart and his legs are stretching. And we can see that he's no longer the country gentleman who's walking down the path telling us truths. He's the man being split in half, trying desperately to hold it all together. So that brings us back to William Faulkner. We have an and yet with Faulkner. We have And yet's with a lot of authors, and yet's about women, about homophobia, about violence, lots of things. Nazism. We give them as much fairness as a historical look permits. We don't expect Aristotle to be Alan Alda. And yet, and yet we want writers to matter because they know things, because they have a vision, because they have wisdom, because they're presenting the truth. They're presenting truth about human beings, about their strengths and their weaknesses, their flights of fancy and their failings. And so it's fair to look at the and yet. Faulkner was a great, great writer. And yet. And yet, let's get right to it. Here's a man who said in an interview that if the United States was fighting Mississippi over the issue of desegregation he would head out to the streets and fight for Mississippi, even if it meant shooting Negroes. Ugly, ugly stuff. How can a great writer espouse those views 
At the same time, he said that segregation was morally, legally, and ethically the incorrect position. So what he's saying, I guess, is that he's willing to side with his homeland, the South, or Mississippi, against the United States if the issue was over the equality of black people. He had a loyalty to his homeland that trumped his belief in a morally, legally, and ethically sound position. That's a powerful loyalty. That's the stuff of civil wars, literally. That is the stuff of civil wars, of the civil war here in America. So, we're not here to litigate that dispute, but we are here to say, to ask, what kind of a mind thinks that way? That's a mind pulled in two directions violently. On the one hand, a mind that looks... Let me be clear about this. I'm not saying the problem is that he's wrong, that he took a position and I think his position is wrong. I'm saying that he himself took this position. He believed it was wrong. That was in that quote, too. Morally, legal, legally, and ethically, it was wrong. And yet, he would fight to defend it, even committing murder to do so. Hmm. On the one hand, a mind that looks around and says, yes, I get it. Equality is good, inequality is bad. On the other hand, I'd fight to the death to stop it if it came to that. Why? What can justify that? Loyalty to a cause? What cause? And what does it do to that mindset? And if you're writing fiction, what happens when your mind has those two different opposing views? Do you set that aside? Do you explore it? Do you question yourself? Do you make excuses? Ignore it? It's a fascinating subject. I don't really care what Faulkner thought about race. I care what Faulkner, the writer, did with what Faulkner thought about race. Helps that Faulkner was a Titanic figure. Maybe Titanic, maybe that's the right word here. Titanic in the sense of great. Titanic in the sense of a shipwreck. Hardly anyone in American literature is as majestic and grand He wrote close to 20 novels, 100 short stories, plays, screenplays. He wrote enduring American classics like The Sound and the Fury, As They Lay Dying, Absalom, Absalom, Light in August. He's one of the most celebrated American writers ever, and the most celebrated writer from the American South. Titanic, a giant. And yet, it's hard to think of a writer who crashed into a bigger iceberg, and that iceberg was the civil rights movement and especially the century or so after the Civil War. In the South, the Jim Crow South. That was the backdrop for his life and his books, too. He's formed by it. He engages with it. He wrestles with the problems. He sometimes gets it right and sometimes gets it wrong. Sometimes really wrong. In some ways, it makes him a worse writer. You could look at it that way. It taints his legacy. It shades some of his books. Casts a shadow, I mean. But you could also look at it, as I do, as an intriguing puzzle. I don't need to take my views of race from William Faulkner, and neither do you. That's not the point here. The point is that we have a brilliant author, a genius storyteller, a totemic figure, 
A hero, a saint, a villain, a visionary, a hypocrite, a beloved figure, a despised man, a celebrated prize winner, a mocked, misguided soul. That's rich stuff for a thoughtful person. If we are thoughtful, as I'd like to think we are, there are boring people who say all the right things, and there are boring people who are distasteful. Faulkner is neither of these. Faulkner is not boring. We're not going to throw out his books because of some comments he made in an interview. We're also not going to use those comments as a prism. Prism. Sounds so much like prison. We're not going to use those comments as a prism. as the only way to look at Faulkner's books. We're going to use those comments as a reminder that when we examine literature, it's fair to ask what it's trying to do what it does, and if there's anything, it's missing. It's selling us on a vision. What do we do with that vision? Do we just accept it as gospel? Or do we interrogate it, take it apart, try to see what it has for us? Can it enlighten? Can it reveal? So here's what we're going to do. We'll take a quick break, then hear a few me. Well... Actually, let's cancel that. Let's postpone the emails for today because we have a lot to cover. Both the story, A Rose for Emily, and Mike Palindrome. We'll take our break, have Mike on, and then we'll dive into a genuine masterpiece by a genuine American original, A Rose for Emily, by the Titanic, William Faulkner. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of William Faulkner, the man of whom Jean-Paul Sartre once said, Faulkner c'est un Dieu, is the man they call the Jew of podcast guests, the Jew of the Literature Supporters Club, or at least the president, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. 
Wow, that, that's quite the introduction. Thank you. <laughs> so the quote I just read is pretty famous with Sartre calling Faulkner a god. I looked it up. Actually, the full quote is, for the youth of France, Faulkner is a god. So I don't know if he meant that uh-huh. he was commenting on others, but it, it did seem like high praise. I know he was popular in France in 1945. He was out of print, but his reputation, his critical reputation was on the rise. He was in his mid-40s. He was published 17 novels, and although they uh, they were all out of print, but the tide was starting to turn. Within the next couple of decades, he won the Nobel Prize. He's considered the great novelist of his generation, above even Fitzgerald and Hemingway. He's placed mm-hmm. by some critics, like Harold Bloom, as being in the category of Melville and Hawthorne and Twain and Henry James as sort of the American pantheon. And I, I can see why people make that claim, and yet I have some serious reservations about Faulkner. But let me hear your thoughts. Uh, you started reading Faulkner in college in the early 90s, I think. What was your first impression? You know, I, I was surprised at how little Faulkner I've read. I mean, mm. I've read some short stories, and I've read two of his novels, yeah. uh, Sound and the Fury and As I Lay Dying, uh, both of which I loved. And yeah. used to kind of turn to a lot and read bits here and there. I feel like I, I could just get so much out of reading a page of Faulkner. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because post college, once I started working, you know, through my 30s and 40s, I have to say I, I really don't. Uh, I do so much rereading. I, I probably reread. I probably read 40 books a year and maybe reread 15 books out of the 40. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't read reread any Faulkner, hmm. and it's just I don't know what it is, why I don't reach for him. But I mean, one thing maybe is that. It's very depressing. It's, Mm, (laughs) you know, you kind of like you're you're in the trenches with him. (laughs) That's true. There's a great quote uh, Malcolm Cowley Mm -hmm. said where he said, uh, quote, if you imagine Huckleberry Finn living in the house of Usher and telling stories while the walls crumble (laughs) about him, that will give you the double quality of Faulkner's work at its best. And. You know, it's funny that you say that you can get so much out of reading a page because there is that aspect of Faulkner. It's almost Joycean where you can kind of fall into the language and you you see little interesting little uh, adjectives he uses or different sentences or different things in the prose. But when you, you hear Malcolm Cowley say that about Huckleberry Finn living in the House of Usher and telling stories, you would think these would be books that you just dive into the way you might dive into a Dickens or or some big potboiler type author. But I don't find Faulkner to be like that. I find him to be kind of dense and, and uh, it's a little bit tough to penetrate a lot of the time. He is kind yeah. of a raconteur, but it's not a it's not like sitting back and listening to Huck Finn tell a story. Yeah, I mean, there. like I, I was paging through my copy of As I Lay Dying and I, I had marked just these very sad sentences like uh, this chapter, Addie, uh, as I lay dying is written from 15 points of view. These, mm-hmm. these characters are leading their mother um, who's dying uh, to a, a funeral. And one of the chapters begins in the afternoon when school was out and the last one had left with his little dirty sniffling nose. Instead of going home, I would go down the hill to the spring where I could be quiet and hate them. 
<laughs> it's just, I mean, it's kind of a, a just an incredible sentence. I know? kind of remember as I lied, as I lay dying being a very important book for you when we were in college. I, I think I was just uh, so, so stunned yeah. that this could be literature. Yeah. That you could, you could write sentences like this, like I, another sentence I marked, I wrote, it was her eyes, kind of dumb and hopeful and sullenly willing to be disappointed all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just like, you know, you, you, you read all this realism and then you read mm. all this modern talky uh, fiction yeah. and then you encounter Faulkner and you're just like, where is this coming from? Like where... This entire world, yeah, that exists with Faulkner. Yeah, I uh, felt that when I was reading the story, and as I was reading some of the other stories around it in the collection, I, I've got my issues with him because I feel like he's a bit of a an unreliable person for me to be listening to, because I think I've I've developed more issues with the South than I had when I was younger, and and reading about him and race and just. You know, I, I just don't know that I can learn a lot of lessons from him personally because he had this huge moral blind spot. But yeah. then when you read him, you think, well, even though he's got that, you know, I don't read every author to be perfect on every issue. And a lot of his works, they aren't necessarily offensive. It's not like you, I'm completely turned off. It's just that I wish that he was taking something on in a different way. And I wish he was a little more, a little broader in his thinking. But there's mm -hmm. no denying that he is a genius. I mean, he's he's like a visionary and a, a fiction. The craft of his fiction combined with his kind of a, a visionary quality. It's like reading, I don't know, it's like Dickens mashed together with Blake or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there's there's something very high, high art about him that, you know, he's compared a lot with he's grouped with southern gothic southern writing and to me he he's almost like parisian there's something about the way he writes yeah. i mean the substance of course is you know very grounded in the south but i i found this great quote he he had about art um he he said the writer's only responsibility is to his art he, he will be completely ruthless if he is a good writer hmm. he has a dream and anguishes him so much he must get rid of it he has no peace until then if a writer has to rob his mother, he will not hesitate. The ode on a Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he also, he said the killed all their darlings, right? Oh, yeah. That's the big MFA. Yeah. Tip uh, that nobody, nobody follows. <laughs> so, le <laughs> so let's start talking about, and we'll set up the story we're going to hear today, A Rose for Emily, which was the first story of his published in a national magazine. Oh, is it's it, incredible. Yeah. Is it representative yeah. of Faulkner, would you say? You know, I was struggling with this because I think nine-tenths of it is, but mm -hmm. then you don't get the stream of consciousness that yeah. I associate him with. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that the, the, the expert sense of place and setting mm -hmm. is def definitely there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's got the atmosphere of Faulkner. It's yeah. it's kind of I look at it as kind of a good gateway drug. It kind of mm -hmm. gives you the flavor and the feel of Faulkner before you get a lot of the more challenging aspects of his prose style. 
but yeah. you you definitely get the the town, the history, the the whole sweep of the generations and the crumbling aristocracy in the south and the strong-minded individuals who are clinging to something and then the way it turns into this uh kind of these monstrosities, this gothic aspect that there's a there's an uneasy feeling that even when the story is goes through its passages where it's kind of funny, there's this uneasy feeling that settles around everything. It's kind of like you know something ominous is is happening out there. <laughs> it's like a haunted yeah. town, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like you don't know where where the horror is going to come from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but you, yeah. What you don't really get here are the multiple narrators. You get a little bit of innovation. A lot of people praise this for the way the town is the narrator uh, and, and what right. he does with that. And, and it does give you some nonlinear aspects to it, which I always think is a little bit overpraised. I always think that with Pulp Fiction as well. I think, you know, it's not really that big of a deal to tell a story out of order. It's not that hard <laughs> to do. <laughs> and it's not that innovative. But uh, in any case, but it needs to be pulled off. It shows some some dedication to craft, I guess. So anything else we should say before we listen to the story? I, you know, I was just going to add that I, I, I was very unimpressed by the opening. Mm. Um, the first time I read it, the second time I read it, probably the third. Um, it's it's an unpaid tax mm. notice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of pre- <laughs> pretty dry. Yeah. So just stick with it. So stick like, with it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm going to say, I've already recorded the story here, and there's a, a handful of N-words in the story, which I've changed to Negro, which I don't always do when I'm reading these stories aloud, but in this case, it just seemed like they were a bit yeah. of a distraction. It wasn't... Uh, I've got a Baldwin story, James Baldwin story coming up, where I don't change any of them because it's it's really essential to the story, yeah. how it's used. But here, I just didn't feel like reading them. I just changed them. I know that's... Some people will probably accuse me of Baudlerism or something, but I just... I just didn't want to read them with this story. So if you read the print version, you will find them if, if that's important for someone to be, you know, the, the, to get the pure unadulterated Faulkner and whatever language he used. But for me, I just, uh, I just cleaned it up a little bit. So uh, let's take a quick break. Then we'll hear the story arose for Emily. And then Mike and I will be back to discuss it. and died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men threw a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument. The women, mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house, which no one save an old manservant, a combined gardener and cook, had seen in at least ten years. It was a big squarish frame house that had once been white, decorated with cupolas and spires and scrolled balconies in the heavenly, lightsome style of the seventies set on what had once been our most select street. But garages and cotton gins had encroached and obliterated even the august names of that neighborhood. Only Miss Emily's house was left, lifting its stubborn and coquettish decay above the cotton wagons and the gasoline pumps, an eyesore among eyesores. 
And now, Miss Emily had gone to join the representatives of those august names where they lay in the cedar-bemused cemetery, among the ranked and anonymous graves of Union and Confederate soldiers who fell at the Battle of Jefferson. Alive, Miss Emily had been a tradition, a duty, and a care, a sort of hereditary obligation upon the town, dating from that day in 1894, when Colonel Sartorus, the mayor, he who fathered the edict that no Negro woman should appear on the streets without an apron, remitted her taxes, the dispensation dating from the death of her father on into perpetuity. Not that Miss Emily would have accepted charity. Colonel Sartorus invented an involved tale to the effect that Miss Emily's father had loaned money to the town, which the town, as a matter of business, preferred this way of repaying. Only a man of Colonel Sartorus's generation and thought could have invented it, and only a woman could have believed it. When the next generation, with its more modern ideas, became mayors and aldermen, this arrangement created some little dissatisfaction. On the first of the year, they mailed her a tax notice. February came, and there was no reply. They wrote her a formal letter, asking her to call at the sheriff's office at her convenience. A week later, the mayor wrote her himself, offering to call or to send his car for her, and received in reply a note on paper, of an archaic shape, in a thin, flowing calligraphy and faded ink, to the effect that she no longer went out at all. The tax notice was also enclosed, without comment. They called a special meeting of the Board of Aldermen. A deputation waited upon her, knocked at the door through which no visitor had passed, since she ceased giving China painting lessons eight or ten years earlier. They were admitted by the old Negro into a dim hall, from which a stairway mounted into still more shadow. It smelled of dust and disuse, a close, dank smell. The Negro led them into the parlor. It was furnished in heavy, leather-covered furniture. When the Negro opened the blinds of one window, they could see that the leather was cracked. And when they sat down, a faint dust rose sluggishly about their thighs, spinning with slow motes in the single sun-ray. On a tarnished gilt easel before the fireplace stood a crayon portrait of Miss Emily's father. They rose when she entered, a small, fat woman in black, with a thin gold chain descending to her waist and vanishing into her belt, leaning on an ebony cane with a tarnished gold head. Her skeleton was small and spare. Perhaps that was why what would have been merely plumpness in another was obesity in her. She looked bloated, like a body long submerged in motionless water, and of that pallid hue. Her eyes, lost in the fatty ridges of her face, looked like two small pieces of coal pressed into a lump of dough as they moved from one face to another while the visitors stated their errand. She did not ask them to sit. She just stood in the door and listened quietly until the spokesman came to a stumbling halt. Then they could hear the invisible watch ticking at the end of the gold chain. Her voice was dry and cold. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Colonel Sartorus explained it to me. Perhaps one of you can gain access to the city records and satisfy yourselves. But we have. We are the city authorities, Miss Emily. Didn't you get a notice from the sheriff, signed by him? I received a paper, yes, Miss Emily said. Perhaps he considers himself the sheriff. I have no taxes in Jefferson. But there is nothing on the books to show that, you see. We must go by the... 
see Colonel Sartorus. I have no taxes in Jefferson. But, Miss Emily, see Colonel Sartorus. Colonel Sartorus had been dead almost ten years. I have no taxes in Jefferson. Tobe! The Negro appeared. Show these gentlemen out. Two. So she vanquished them, horse and foot, just as she had vanquished their fathers thirty years before about the smell. That was two years after her father's death, and a short time after her sweetheart, the one we believed would marry her, had deserted her. After her father's death, she went out very little. After her sweetheart went away, people hardly saw her at all. A few of the ladies had the temerity to call, but were not received, and the only sign of life about the place was the negro man, a young man then, going in and out with a market basket. Just as if a man, any man, could keep a kitchen properly, the ladies said, so they were not surprised when the smell developed. It was another link between the gross, teeming world and the high and mighty Grierson's. A neighbor, a woman, complained to the mayor, Judge Stevens, eighty years old. But what will you have me do about it, madam? he said. Why, send her word to stop it, the woman said. Isn't there a law? I'm sure that won't be necessary, Judge Stevens said. It's probably just a snake or a rat that Negro of hers killed in the yard. I'll speak to him about it. The next day, he received two more complaints, one from a man who came in diffident deprecation. We really must do something about it, Judge. I'd be the last one in the world to bother Miss Emily, but we've got to do something. That night the board of aldermen met, three gray beards and one younger man, a member of the rising generation. It's simple enough, he said. Send her word to have her place cleaned up. Give her a certain time to do it in, and if she don't... Damn it, sir, Judge Stevens said. Will you accuse a lady to her face of smelling bad? So the next night... After midnight, four men crossed Miss Emily's lawn and slunk about the house like burglars, sniffing along the base of the brickwork and at the cellar openings, while one of them performed a regular sewing motion with his hand out of a sack slung from his shoulder. They broke open the cellar door and sprinkled lime there and in all the outbuildings. As they recrossed the lawn, a window that had been dark was lighted, and Miss Emily sat in it, the light behind her, and her upright torso motionless as that of an idol. They crept quietly across the lawn and into the shadow of the locusts that lined the street. After a week or two, the smell went away. That was when people had begun to feel really sorry for her. People in our town, remembering how old Lady Wyatt, her great-aunt, had gone completely crazy at last, believed that the Grierson's held themselves a little too high for what they really were. None of the young men were quite good enough for Miss Emily and such. We had long thought of them as a tableau, Miss Emily a slender figure in white in the background, her father a spraddled silhouette in the foreground, his back to her and clutching a horsewhip, the two of them framed by the back-flung front door. So when she got to be thirty and was still single, we were not pleased exactly, but vindicated. Even with insanity in the family, she wouldn't have turned down all of her chances if they had really materialized. When her father died, it got about that the house was all that was left to her, and in a way, people were glad. At last they could pity Miss Emily. Being left alone and a pauper, she had become humanized. Now she too would know the old thrill and the old despair 
of a penny more or less. The day after his death, all the ladies prepared to call at the house and offer condolence and aid, as is our custom. Miss Emily met them at the door, dressed as usual and with no trace of grief on her face. She told them that her father was not dead. She did that for three days, with the ministers calling on her and the doctors trying to persuade her to let them dispose of the body. Just as they were about to resort to law and force, she broke down, and they buried her father quickly. We did not say she was crazy then. We believed she had to do that. We remembered all the young men her father had driven away, and we knew that with nothing left, she would have to cling to that which had robbed her, as people will. 3. She was sick for a long time. When we saw her again, her hair was cut short, making her look like a girl, with a vague resemblance to those angels in colored church windows, sort of tragic and serene. The town had just let the contracts for paving the sidewalks, and in the summer after her father's death, they began the work. The construction company came with negroes and mules and machinery, and a foreman named Homer Barron, a Yankee, a big, dark, ready man, with a big voice and eyes lighter than his face. The little boys would follow in groups to hear him cuss the negroes, and the negroes singing in time to the rise and fall of picks. Pretty soon he knew everybody in town. Whenever you heard a lot of laughing anywhere about the square, Homer Barron would be in the center of the group. Presently we began to see him and Miss Emily on Sunday afternoons, driving in the yellow-wheeled buggy and the matched team of bays from the livery stable. At first we were glad that Miss Emily would have an interest, because the ladies all said, of course a Grierson would not think seriously of a northerner, a day laborer. But there were still others older people, who said that even grief could not cause a real lady to forget noblesse oblige without calling it noblesse oblige. They just said, poor Emily, her kinsfolk should come to her. She had some kin in Alabama, but years ago her father had fallen out with them over the estate of old lady Wyatt, the crazy woman, and there was no communication between the two families. They had not even been represented at the funeral. And as soon as the old people said, poor Emily, the whispering began. Do you suppose it's really so? They said to one another. Of course it is. What else could... This behind their hands. Rustling of craned silk and satin behind jalousies closed upon the sun of Sunday afternoon as the thin, swift clop-clop-clop of the matched team passed. Poor Emily. She carried her head high enough, even when we believed that she was fallen. It was as if she demanded more than ever the recognition of her dignity as the last Grierson, as if it had wanted that touch of earthiness to reaffirm her imperviousness. Like when she bought the rat poison, the arsenic. That was over a year after they had begun to say, poor Emily, and while the two female cousins were visiting her. I want some poison, she said to the druggist. She was over thirty then, still a slight woman, though thinner than usual, with cold, haughty black eyes in a face the flesh of which was strained across the temples and about the eye sockets, as you imagine a light housekeeper's face ought to look. I want some poison, she said. Yes, Miss Emily. What kind? For rats and such? I'd recommend... I want the best you have. I don't care what kind. The druggist named several. They'll kill anything up to an elephant, but what you want is arsenic, Miss Emily said. Is that a good one? Is... Arsenic? Yes, ma'am. But what you want... 
I want arsenic. The druggist looked down at her. She looked back at him, erect, her face like a strained flag. Why, of course, the druggist said, if that's what you want, but the law requires you to tell what you are going to use it for. Miss Emily just stared at him. Her head tilted back in order to look him eye for eye until he looked away and went and got the arsenic and wrapped it up. The Negro delivery boy brought her the package. The druggist didn't come back. When she opened the package at home, there was written on the box, under the skull and bones, for rats. Four. So the next day we all said she will kill herself, and we said it would be the best thing. When she had first begun to be seen with Homer Barron, we had said she will marry him. Then we said she will persuade him yet, because Homer himself had remarked he liked men, and it was known that he drank with the younger men in the Elks Club that he was not a marrying man. Later we said, poor Emily, behind the jealousies as they passed on Sunday afternoon in the glittering buggy, Miss Emily with her head high, and Homer Barron with his hat cocked and a cigar in his teeth, reins and whip in a yellow glove. Then some of the ladies began to say that it was a disgrace to the town and a bad example to the young people. The men did not want to interfere, but at last the ladies forced the Baptist minister, Miss Emily's people were Episcopal, to call upon her. He would never divulge what happened during the interview, but he refused to go back again. The next Sunday, they again drove about the streets, and the following day, the minister's wife wrote to Miss Emily's relations in Alabama. So she had blood kin under her roof again, and we sat back to watch developments. At first, nothing happened. Then we were sure that they were to be married. We learned that Miss Emily had been to the jeweler's and ordered a man's toilet set in silver, with the letters H.B. on each piece. Two days later, we learned that she had bought a complete outfit of men's clothing, including a nightshirt, and we said, They are married. We were really glad. We were glad because the two female cousins were even more grierson than Miss Emily had ever been. So, we were not surprised when Homer Barron, the streets had been finished some time now, was gone. We were a little disappointed that there was not a public blowing off, but we believed that he had gone on to prepare for Miss Emily's coming or to give her a chance to get rid of the cousins. By that time, it was a cabal, and we were all Miss Emily's allies to help circumvent the cousins. Sure enough, after another week they departed, and as we had expected all along, within three days Homer Barron was back in town. A neighbor saw the Negro man admit him at the kitchen door at dusk one evening. And that was the last we saw of Homer Barron, and of Miss Emily for some time. The Negro man went in and out with the market basket, but the front door remained closed. Now and then we would see her at a window for a moment, as the men did that night when they sprinkled the lime, but for almost six months she did not appear on the streets. Then we knew that this was to be expected too, as if that quality of her father which had thwarted her woman's life so many times had been too virulent and too furious to die. When we next saw Miss Emily, she had grown fat and her hair was turning gray. During the next few years, it grew grayer and grayer until it attained an even pepper-and-salt iron gray when it ceased turning. Up to the day of her death at 74, it was still that vigorous iron gray, like the hair of an active man. From that time on, her front door remained closed 
save for a period of six or seven years when she was about forty, during which she gave lessons in china painting. She fitted up a studio in one of the downstairs rooms, where the daughters and granddaughters of Colonel Sartorus's contemporaries were sent to her with the same regularity and in the same spirit that they were sent to church on Sundays with a twenty-five-cent piece for the collection plate. Meanwhile, her taxes had been remitted. Then the newer generation became the backbone and the spirit of the town, and the painting pupils grew up and fell away and did not send their children to her with boxes of color and tedious brushes and pictures cut from the ladies' magazines. The front door closed upon the last one and remained closed for good. When the town got free postal delivery, Miss Emily alone refused to let them fasten their metal numbers above her door and attach a mailbox to it. She would not listen to them. Daily, monthly, yearly, we watched the Negro grow grayer and more stooped, going in and out with the market basket. Each December, we sent her a tax notice, which would be returned by the post office a week later, unclaimed. Now and then, we would see her in one of the downstairs windows. She had evidently shut up the top floor of the house, like the carven torso of an idol in a niche, looking or not looking at us, we could never tell which. Thus, she passed from generation to generation, dear, inescapable, impervious, tranquil, and perverse. And so she died, fell ill in the house filled with dust and shadows, with only a doddering negro man to wait on her. We did not even know she was sick. We had long since given up trying to get any information from the negro. He talked to no one, probably not even to her, for his voice had grown harsh and rusty, as if from disuse. She died in one of the downstairs rooms, in a heavy walnut bed with a curtain, her gray head propped on a pillow, yellow and moldy with age and lack of sunlight. 5. The negro met the first of the ladies at the front door, and let them in, with their hushed, sibilant voices and their quick, curious glances, and then he disappeared. He walked right through the house and out the back, and was not seen again. The two female cousins came at once. They held the funeral on the second day, with the town coming to look at Miss Emily beneath a mass of bought flowers, with the crayon face of her father musing profoundly above the beer, and the ladies sibilant and macabre, and the very old men some in their brushed Confederate uniforms on the porch and the lawn, talking of Miss Emily as if she had been a contemporary of theirs, believing that they had danced with her and courted her, perhaps, confusing time with its mathematical progression, as the old do, to whom all the past is not a diminishing road, but, instead, a huge meadow, which no winter ever quite touches, divided from them now by the narrow bottleneck of the most recent decade of years." Already we knew that there was one room in that region above stairs which no one had seen in forty years, and which would have to be forced. They waited until Miss Emily was decently in the ground before they opened it. The violence of breaking down the door seemed to fill this room with pervading dust. A thin, acrid pall as of the tomb seemed to lie everywhere upon this room, decked and furnished as for a bridal upon the valance curtains of faded rose color, upon the rose-shaded lights, upon the dressing table, upon the delicate array of crystal, and the man's toilet things backed with tarnished silver, silver so tarnished that the monogram was obscured. Among them lay a collar and tie, as if they had just been removed, which, lifted, left upon the surface, 
a pale crescent in the dust. Upon a chair hung the suit, carefully folded. Beneath it, the two mute shoes and the discarded socks. The man himself lay in the bed. For a long while, we just stood there, looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace, but now the long sleep that outlasts love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckolded him. What was left of him, rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt, had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay, and upon him and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and biting dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward, that faint and invisible dust dry and acrid in the nostrils, we saw a long strand of iron-gray hair. Okay, we're back. Mike, what struck you about the story arose for Emily? Was it Faulkner as you remembered him? I mean, it's one of the greatest short stories of all time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what elements I mean, did you like? What, I, what I, Support I think, the statement. I think the empathy for each of the characters mm. um, and for Emily in particular. And just the, the entire structure of it, the the first the what is a third person first person plural you know the we and mm -hmm. uh um which is rarely done and the only yeah. other work i can think of is um joshua ferris's then we came to an end mm -hmm. um, i actually love that feeling it's like this i call it like light claustrophobia you know yeah uh, there's this sense of conformity and there's a sense of us versus them right um Right. And I, it's it's very uh, it's very appropriate for the story where the big thing is kind of like, how could we have been so wrong for so long about this woman? You know, how did we let this happen right under our noses, basically? Yeah, I mean, it's just brilliant the way you, you sort of feel like, well, I know where this is headed. You know, she, she she's either going to marry or not. Mm hmm. <laughs> and she she spends her life with a corpse. I mean, it's just it's you know once she buys the poison, you know that things are gonna take a bad turn. But yeah. you, you don't quite believe it until uh, after her passing, they break the door down. Yeah, and he and, kind of Faulkner uh, Faulkner kind of tricks you a little bit there too. He does a little sleight of hand where she goes yeah. in to buy the poison, and she's like, "Arsenic is that a good one?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you think oh my god is she a murderer what's going on here and then he says that everyone in the town says oh she'll kill herself you know like she's she's so distraught about this situation with her uh lover and husband that uh she's going to kill herself and so you, it kind of throws you off the track a little bit because then when she doesn't die you think uh Oh well, maybe she was just quirky and just bought the arsenic just to have it on hand, and yeah. and then when it comes back and it's got the, the writing on the label, it says for rats. 
I mean, and the quirkiness is so well detailed, you know, when the judge goes, you know, damn it, sir, will yeah. you accuse a lady to her face of smelling bad? I mean, it's, <laughs> right. like, it's like, what? What is happening here? Yeah. Um, but it's so, I mean, so there's, they've got these, this aristocratic manners and the, yeah, the, right. You know the the gentility the of it and the money and and yet it's all a big hoax. It's all none of it is rooted in actuality. In actuality, she's kind of this pathetic, uh, broken down woman. It's like the town can't get rid. It can't rid itself of its former conception of itself that it that it was this grand place full of grand people. I think yeah that. The, the manners and the money and the portrait of the South, you have, there's, there's so much going on that you have that. And then you have basically uh, like a, a horror story, you know, once mm-hmm. the Homer Baron disappears, just trying to figure out what happened and just kind of can't believe that she would have just murdered him. But, and then you have like the spooky uh, black uh, butler servant yeah, who doesn't speak. Yeah, I mean, it's... right. And when he, he does speak, his voice is rusty from disuse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he is a kind of an odd figure, although the story from his point of view would certainly be interesting. Uh, he must have, you know, known what's going on and just lived with it, which is really fascinating. Also, that minister, what did you make of the minister? Like, shows up and uh, they bring him in to meet with her, and then he... He, he like flees and refuses to to say what it was that they talked about. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, the story does a great job of kind of creating all these worlds that are not in the story. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. the cousins from out yeah. of state. Yeah, right. The minister running away. Like he, he's so crafty in the way, you know, he doesn't show everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, There's a suggestion yeah, that, that everyone I mean, in the town hates the cousins. They're ready for them to leave, too. And it's kind of like yeah. maybe the cousins could have saved the day. You know, they were brought in to kind of impose some normalcy on this. The town wants to get rid of them. And you kind of are left wondering, well, were the cousins really so bad? Or is it just this town that's so weird that the, the cousins stand out because they are normal? Yeah. So that back and forth between, you know, the reader's empathy for the town Mm-hmm. Um, and saying like, well, why can't we just get rid of this strange person? And then the empathy for her, because the whole town seems pitted against her. Right. That's, that's, that, th- that is really, you know, that balance is kept up throughout. Yeah. Um, so what is your relationship to the South? You know, I, I think I love Flannery O'Connor mm-hmm. and James Dickey and, and I think, I definitely, I'll be the first to admit that I read it in this voyeuristic way. Like an anthropologist. Well, that's that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say like as, you know, in a sensationalist way. Yeah. You know, like, that, like someone would pick up the National Enquirer at the supermarket. Well, maybe not that low. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. So yeah. like in real life, what is your relationship with the South? Have you ever been there? I mean, I... I, I consider anything below Philly the South, so <laughs> I am not like right. dying to go down to the South. Although I have been to New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, a number of like ten times, I've been to New Orleans a fair bit, and yeah. so and I I think 
there are parts of the South that I find the community in the South can be incredibly warm in a way that is absent in, you know, the East Coast, the, mm-hmm. the Northeast. Yeah. Um, and that reminds me of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's this, you know, the, what happens after the community decides that people don't belong you know, the community only works up to the point where everyone is happy. And then at some point, the community excludes people. And then you get this rigid conformity Yeah. Um, that I'm always, you know, defensive about and waiting to see happen when I, you know, when I think of the South. Yeah. Um, so there, there is something very, I, I consider myself incredibly provincial when it comes to different areas of this country, including the South. Mm. You mean because you're, you're on the Island of Manhattan and it's yeah the, for the rest of the country. Uh, New York is a constant for the rest of us. It's, you know, when you turn on the news, it comes from New York. When you read a book, it was published in New York. That's sort of we're it, it would be really hard to be anywhere in the country and not have an opinion about New York city, but you can be when you're in New York city, that doesn't mean you have an opinion about every other place. There's probably places where you would have a hard time finding them on a map. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Flannery <laughs> O'Connor is an interesting barometer for me because I, I just love her fiction. And I love her sense of humor. And then when I read about her, uh, you know, I read a lot about her uh, essays and some biography about her. And she, you know, she opposed the the people from the North who were trying to integrate the South. You know, and she wrote a lot of correspondence about current events. But whenever there was a lynching, she, there was no mention mm. in her letters about that, which to the point where historians say that she didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. It's not that she approved, but she just felt like it was just too either too shameful or just not something that should be addressed. Well, that and that kind of leads me to my Crazy. problem with Faulkner, where he said something similar, where he said something like, you know, the thing about a mob, he was talking about lynchings. And he said, you know, the thing about a mob is it's a lot like a jury. They have a way of being right. And I think he said, yeah. I never heard of a completely innocent man who was strung up, you know, or something like that. And, mm. you know, I just find that. Yeah. But on the other hand. You know, I'm not reading him to be educated on race relations. Yeah. And in some ways, I find it kind of interesting to read him unable to address this huge elephant in the room, to, mm-hmm. unable to address them properly. Like, I think he's able to address, you know, he'll have black characters and he'll try to get inside their minds or try to see things from their point of view. And he's a little bit successful sometimes and not successful other times. And he sometimes you could give him a little bit of credit for that. And sometimes you could say, well, no, actually, look at this. He's just trafficking stereotypes. But I just think I don't want to I don't want to pick at little phrases or little descriptions or a character here and there and mm-hmm. say, Oh, see, he's racist after all, or oh, see, he's not as racist as people think, or he's he's uh, progressive for his time, or he's he's conservative for his time, or you know anything like that. I just look yeah. at it as the whole overall project and the whole 
uh, dealing with the South after the Civil War and the whole myth-making of, well, the, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, it was about states' rights, or it, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, and the whole, like, the whole Jim Crow era, and believing that you have uh, individuals in that era who are noble and who are, are virtuous and who are, you know, should be celebrated for their upstanding values and their patriotism and all of this, when we're really talking about a, yeah. uh, you know, a, a section of the country who rebelled and seceded, they committed treason and they fought against the North because they wanted to maintain slavery. And yeah. I almost look at the Southern Gothic as like this huge cry for help that it's this, <laughs> you know, and it, it's hard to talk about the South without, seeming like you're coming across as condescending. And I know that there are probably people who hate listening to this and think, you know, oh, you, you, there you go again, you know, you and your superior ideas and you don't, you don't understand and, and all of that. But I look at it as like, well, what do you do when you have a town or a, a community where everyone is devoted to this idea of, you know, that they're celebrating these qualities in themselves Mm -hmm. But then you know that there is this huge moral failing that you're a part of and that your your parents and grandparents were a part of, and you're kind of covering it all up, and you're not really reckoning with it the way they might have in, say, Germany after World War II, where they go through this kind of, how did we, how did we let ourselves do that and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again and instead you're kind of saying like well no we were just protecting our homeland isn't that something we should be valuing and celebrating and, and building statues to and flying the rebel flag and doesn't that stand for good things and mm -hmm. and uh and so i just think it ends up coming out in these like twisted deformed characters yeah. and and plagues and floods and, and all the things that we associate with the Southern Gothic, I think of as this sort of writers not necessarily dealing with things directly. Maybe they're not even conscious of it. I don't think Faulkner was sitting down saying, well, I can't really talk about race, so I'm going to instead make all of these characters twisted and deformed. But I think it, I think there is kind of this connection there, or at least it's a connection for me as a reader. Yeah, I mean, he, he really gets into the characters' heads. And I guess the the strength of his art for me is it is his the psycho the psychology mm -hmm. where I can almost imagine the characters um on a on a theater stage mm -hmm. and I can just hear the language. I love the language. But yeah. I mean I you know I was talking about this with my daughter, you know, pointing out to her that Raul Dahl was a was a crazy anti-Semite. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. Uh, and a spy. I was going to do an episode yeah. on him because he was a spy. I thought that yeah. was cool. But oh my god! But you know, but so was T.S. Eliot. I guess. So was, yeah, and pound. It's a, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there are definitely episodes you can do discussing. You yeah. know. Their, their their historical uh, and cultural place. But yep. then you, you can approach it on just the level of art. And yeah, that I guess that's what I do with Faulkner and 
Flannery O'Connor, their 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 humanity and their you know their their ability to see their community and really document their community. Yeah. Um, to me, is so powerful. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm not suggesting we don't read Faulkner or or that he should be canceled or anything like that. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I I think of it more like trying to analyze my own feelings when I read it. And right. like when I read Nabokov, I think, you know, I, I know it's never really been proven, I don't think, but I think he probably really liked underage girls, you know. <laughs> And, and like you could say, so let's, you know, burn all our copies of Lolita, but that's not really how I read it. I read it as, and I don't read it like, oh, well, this is fun. I read Mm -hmm. it the way when I watch a show like Breaking Bad and I think, why am I rooting for this murderer? You know, why, what is it? What is it? Why does this feel so different that, you know, is it just because he's the protagonist or because when you see someone getting in scrapes, you naturally want them to get out of it? You know, the Americans is like that, too. My my kids and I are watching that now and and mm-hmm. we're kind of thinking like, OK, hang on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's let's take a time out and say we are Americans watching this show. We are rooting for KGB agents who have been <laughs> killing people left and right because they want to destroy America. And not only that, we are now hoping that they kill their daughter, who's just an innocent American, who's not a KGB agent at all. Like, like what kind of show puts you in that kind of position? And I think this last time when I was reading Faulkner, I was thinking of Lenny Riefenstahl and her Mm -hmm. movies and just thinking, yeah, I, even though I'm not going to, you know, hang a picture of Lenny Riefenstahl in my in my office or anything, I just like I'm, I don't worship Humbert Humbert. Mm-hmm. I do find something interesting about watching her movies and thinking, boy, this is technically so good. And it's so full of this artistic vision that I am so not on board with the goals and the aims of it. But it's a very interesting experience to experience art that way where you're not it's not just like Chekhov where it's like okay everything you tell me I'm going to be fine with and it's going to be insightful and I'm just going along and I'm learning about myself and about humanity but it's kind of like I'm I'm more active and I'm resisting and I'm looking for weaknesses and flaws and I'm I'm admiring strengths but I'm a little bit assessing my own admiration for it at the same time to see if I'm admiring it for the right reasons and it's mm-hmm. just a, a different way of reading yeah i mean to, that that's why we need faulkner you know the, the, why mm-hmm. it's important not to separate the story his stories from the south is you know to kind of to see the way he resists or he wasn't able to resist you know what we we now consider to be you know morally wrong questionable yeah. So I I I I find that it, it's really easy to read him in a way that some some of Hemingway's stuff is harder to read because the the racism in Hemingway is like you know on the level of language with mm. slurs or descriptions. Yeah, and Hemingway is is you his know. his homophobia is a little bit uh can be yeah. tough sometimes, and his whole the whole macho. Uh, is just kind of it it feels so uh gratuitous and and unnecessary that you know he probably knew better 
Yeah, man, you got to admire the way Faulkner, his sympathy for Emily yeah, is, is just is, is remarkable. I mean, is that how you read the title? A rose for Emily that it was yeah like she deserves a bit of a break. Let's write her a story and that'll be the rose. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost maybe it's my the what we're going through right now mm. with with COVID nineteen. But I was thinking like, you know, maybe she had some happy days with that corpse <laughs> alongside alongside her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's that's where you know if you can find solace. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I you're, think she, in your way, you should. Right. You know, all all all's fair. And if someone, <laughs> if someone is is mentally ill, it, it always yeah. as I think she probably was. It it just you always feel like you see them smile and you wonder what's making them smile and you're glad that it is making them smile. There's, you think that the rest of their life is maybe full of a lot of suspicion and, and paranoia and pain as it seems to be with her. She's looking out the windows as the guys are sneaking through her lawn and, and pouring lime into her basement windows <laughs> and stuff like that. And you just think, you know, she probably, she probably lived a, a really sad and lonely life where she was, kind of besieged and it's easy for a story like emily's to be the town joke or the town mm-hmm. like oh it turns out wasn't she a weirdo and you just hear that the snippet of it that becomes uh yeah uh, passed down as kind of the folklore of the town but uh for faulkner mm-hmm. to remember that she has this whole life and to, to give it such empathy uh, yeah, I, I find it fascinating the you know what it means to be part of a community because personally I I just am not part of big communities. I mean I'm I'm yeah. in a book club with <laughs> eight other people, and I was thinking like what is the biggest community I have that would violate the ten person social distancing rule? Yeah, and I was like I actually don't I don't have yeah a ten person plus community. Yeah, I just talked about that. I can't remember if this. <laughs> if the episode is aired yet or not, but I just talked about this on a podcast episode, the difference between when I lived in New York city and when I lived in the small town where I grew up and the small town, I could walk up and down every street of the town and I could tell you who lived there and who, not only who lived there, but who's, you know, who their parents were and their grandparents and what they did for a living and how many kids they had. And if they had a dog in the backyard and, and what hobbies they had and what they had in their basement. And it was like, I knew everybody Mm -hmm. in the town and in New York City, you know a few people here and there, and you encounter them in different places. But the whole day you're meeting all these different people, or you're just walking past them, not yeah. meeting them necessarily. But you're just part of this big churn of of humanity. But in a way, it feels um, like you can be more open, too. You know, that yeah, it, it's not like every encounter has to be momentous. It can just be a fleeting... Uh, you know, nice smile at someone at the coffee shop, and you know, as you're, as you're pouring your cream in your coffee or something. Yeah, nobody has to see me buying six bottles of wine, and wondering what's <laughs> yeah. going on. Right, and yeah. if someone new shows up, that's just part of it. You see someone new yeah. every day. It's not like, oh, who's this? Now, who's yeah. this going to disturb our, our community? And who's what should we do about him or her? And should we accept him or her or or drive them out? Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, question for you. Hemingway, Faulkner, 
Fitzgerald. If American literature could have only two of those three, who would you subtract? Wow. I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm probably going <laughs> to make people mad, but I, I would go with uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. You take those two and subtract Wagner? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, it's yeah. funny because I was going to say... I think I would, a lot of people probably drop Hem Fitzgerald, right? I was going to say I'd probably drop Fitzgerald <laughs> because Hemingway and Faulkner were a little more innovative and a little more, they sort of represent mm -hmm. a little something else. But then I'm like, why am I dropping Fitzgerald? He's probably my favorite of the three. That's what, <laughs> see, that's, that's how I went. Like I, I love, I even love like this side of paradise. I mean, I, you know, I, I really enjoy reading Fitzgerald. Yeah. And then I was thinking, here's an analogy. Tolstoy, mm -hmm. Dostoevsky, Chekhov. Who do you subtract? Wow, that's 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 harder. Oh man. I mean, I I guess personally I would drop Chekhov. Yeah. But I think maybe a lot of people would probably drop Dostoevsky. I think I think I'm in the same boat where I would say yeah. Russian literature has got to keep Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, but how can I do yeah. that when Chekhov is my favorite of the three? It was the same. I had the same thought process yeah. as the others. So that's really this is a horrible game. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie's choice. Oh uh, my god! Okay, <laughs> we should do that. We should do that book. I've got that's, a. Uh, that's a great book. <laughs> I've got a Faulkner quiz. Okay. During an interview. When pressed to reveal the works of fiction he admired, mm -hmm. Faulkner cited the following. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. First, the first one he said, I'm going to, that's the blank. Blank, the Bible, which is kind of funny since they said works of fiction. I guess he threw mm -hmm. the Bible in there. Blank, the Bible, Dickens, Chekhov, and the brothers Karamazov. Who was the blank? Hmm. Blank, the Bible, Dickens, the Brothers Karamazov, and what? And Chekhov. And Chekhov. Who or what was the blank? Oof. I mean, I feel like somebody snobby <laughs> has to balance out some of that. Um, I, I mean, I'll be, go with Henry James. There may be a snob involved. It was Don Quixote. <laughs> Someone was just telling me that their second favorite novel is War and Peace and their first is Don Quixote. <laughs> and I you was will. like, oh, I, I was getting to like you as a person. But... You will never live it down. Okay. <laughs> anything else we should say about A Rose for Emily? No, just run out and read it. I mean, I, I you know, I think it really is one of the, the, the greatest short stories. I mean, and just clocking it at whatever it is, seven pages. I mean, mm, mm -hmm. it's amazing. It's an amazing story. Yep. It's worth rereading, too. It's one oh, of those yeah. where, uh, you know, you get more out of it the second or third time through. Totally agree. Okay. Well, as always, Mike, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. William Faulkner, a cry for help. Well, that's one theory of the Southern Gothic anyway. There are others. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to historyofliterature.com slash shop or patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a little contribution. We thank all of your support. Thank you. We thank you for all of your support. This week, we're thanking new patrons Deb, John S., Elsind, Daniel, Constance, Hannah, and Sally. Thank you very much for your support. We truly appreciate your generosity, which helps keep things going here at the History of Literature in good times and in bad. Speaking of good and bad times, I know this is a hard time for a lot of people. I hope you're managing okay. We'll keep trying to do extra shows for those of you at home and alone and those of you who could use a little company or at least a little adult company. We've got some great ones coming up, great shows, I mean, including one of Alice Munro's true masterpieces. So please come back and join us for those. Subscribing helps us out if you haven't done that yet. It's easy to do and pretty much costless, I think, but every little bit helps. And your emails and comments help to make my day a little brighter. Thank you for those, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.